0: Satan has only one trick up his sleeve, and this trick is very often found in the word if. His temptations usually come down to that one thing. That is, the devil attempts to question God's promises. It's all in that word if. In fact, whenever God makes a promise, you can probably be sure that Satan will come around in an attempt to get you to doubt it that's what he does this is what we see in matthew chapter 4. at the very end of matthew chapter 3 christ is baptized by john and god's word comes to jesus and proclaims this is my beloved son well this is a promise to christ a word that is meant to prove beyond a shadow of doubt who christ is and what he has come to do it's a certain word You are. You are my beloved son. It's given to Christ. He is the incarnation of this message. That God is giving himself to the world through his son. But immediately after this word of promise that's given to Christ at his baptism, the spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And what is Satan's word to Christ? If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God, you hear that word, if. And so you see what the devil is doing. Right away, he's trying to bring doubt to the word that God had given Christ before this 40 days of fasting. The wilderness itself in which Christ inhabits for 40 days represents a kind of silence. Christ is alone. He's not eating with others, as he will come to do throughout his ministry. He doesn't have disciples with him. There's no one there. There's not John the Baptist preaching to him. We have no reason to believe that he's hearing God's word speaking to him in those days. The wilderness is the place of being alone and being silent. And in that silence, when it's not clear that God is speaking, all you can do is go back to the promise that God has given you. That's what we have to rely on in the silence. And so it's that word of promise that God has given Christ that Satan is trying to attack. Satan, in that moment, assumes that Christ is weak. He believes that no one could possibly rely on God's promise in that kind of hardship and loneliness. All right, we see this in the Bible and other places as well. All right, we see it in the book of Job. The devil comes to God and talks to him about Job, and Satan tries to make the argument to God that Job will not rely on God's promises if Job goes through real hardship if he loses everything, right? That's the one trick Satan has. He's always trying to call into doubt God's word to you. And so Satan says to Christ, if, right, if you are God's son, he's trying to call into doubt what God has said to Christ. And so Satan, in other words, is saying to Jesus, did God really mean what he said when he said you were his son? If he really meant that, well, prove it. Prove it with a sign. Right? Because Satan believes that if he can get Jesus to try to prove that God's word was true with a sign, then there will be a crack. There will be an opening in Jesus' faith. Right? He would then begin to point out, ah, oh, Jesus, you're starting to doubt. But Jesus does not doubt. His faith is perfect. Jesus says to the devil, we live by the words that come from God's mouth. And so you see how he counteracts Satan's temptation. He goes back to that truth, that God's word is certain. That is what we live by. But we see what Satan does and how he tempts us. And so this morning we're given the story of the Garden of Eden. And we look back to Eden. And what does the serpent say to Eve? Did God say, did God really say that? That's the devil's first word. God had made a promise to Adam and Eve, which was, you can eat from every tree but that one. That one tree is not good for you, so don't eat of it. But they had access to the tree of life. They had access to all of the great gifts of God. They had access to God's very own presence. But Satan wants to call all of that into question. He wants Eve to begin to think, what did God really mean? Did God really have the best intentions for me in mind? Is God's word really true? Is it really sure? And in the Garden of Eden, it worked. Eve begins to question the goodness of God. She questions his word. Does God really have my best intentions in mind? And so we see this pattern over and over in scripture, and we see it in our lives, where God gives a promise the tempter will try to bring doubt. When the Israelites are brought out of the desert, God promises to bring them into the land of Canaan, where they can live as his people in a land of prosperity. What happens? They doubt. They start to believe that they're going to die in the desert, and then they start to doubt that they can take the land from the people who are residing there. They begin to doubt God's promises. And when they doubt God's promises... They miss God's goodness. That's always the work of the tempter. And the tempter works that trick on you as well. He wants you to doubt God's promises. God's promises to you were made at your baptism. And they were made there so that they were proclaimed to you as certain. So that you would not doubt them. Because when you were baptized, you were given this concrete physical sign of his promises, of God promising to forgive your sins, of God promising you life everlasting. It was there he promised that he would never leave you, never forsake you. He promised that you would be made new, that you would be united to him in Christ forever. But those are the promises that Satan will work to attack in your mind. When you come to worship, Before we begin our worship, we always confess our sins and we hear the words of absolution. In those words of absolution, God says, your sins are forgiven. That's a promise. That's a sure and certain word. But for many of you, especially the most conscientious among you, the devil will work really hard to make you doubt those words. Did God really say your sins are forgiven? Does God really mean it? What about that secret sin you didn't confess? What about that habitual sin that you cannot stop committing? What about that really embarrassing, shameful thing you did that you've never told anyone? What about the fact that you know you're a hypocrite and you don't live entirely as you should? Did God really mean that your sins are forgiven? Well, that's the work of the devil. That's what the devil wants to do for us. When you come to communion and you doubt that the body of Christ is really for you, for the forgiveness of sins, when the blood of Christ was really shed for you, that doubt is what the devil wants to bring to all of us. He wants us to doubt that Christ is truly coming to you in the moment at the sacrament for the forgiveness of sins. And so we always go back to our baptisms, Because there, God has said that you are his beloved child. He said that you are marked with the cross of Christ forever. And Satan will make you think that all of that is meaningless, just a ritual. The tempter wants you to believe that you don't really matter to God, that you're not important, that your work isn't meaningful, that God isn't directing your life. But that's all his attack on God's promises. In the church year, Lent is a time for repentance and self-examination, as we heard on Ash Wednesday. And repentance and self-examination are useful practices, so long as they drive you to listen to God's promises for you. And so you've read in the newsletter, I hope, of my plans to begin carving out a time for individual confession and absolution. And that idea fills so many of us, me included, with dread. Right, why would we want to say our sins aloud to a pastor? But the idea is not to make someone uncomfortable, to cause embarrassment. It's not even about creating accountability so you'll stop sinning. But the practice of confession and absolution is always about the opportunity to hear God's promise to you. When Satan says to you, are you really forgiven of that particular sin, Confession gives you the opportunity to talk back to Satan. Yes, I am forgiven. I have heard it. I know it. I've confessed it to God. It is forgiven, and this sin is gone. I have God's promise that my sins are no longer remembered. They will never be brought back up again. Even on the day of judgment, they are destroyed. That's how we talk back to the devil. When he attacks God's promises we point to that truth of God's forgiveness. And that is a gift. And so Lent is our opportunity for us to examine ourselves so that we can continually lean on God's promises. Lent's not just about self-improvement. It's not just about giving up some pleasure, candy, chocolate, coffee, whatever, so that you can make yourself a better person. Those all might be good practices. But the true discipline of Lent is about going back to God's promises. It's about always leaning on that truth that God's promises are for me. And I know they are for me because he has declared it to be true at my baptism. He has declared it to be reality in the death and resurrection of his son. Amen.